You're listening to the Grace Church Podcast, a weekly podcast dedicated to bringing you biblical guidance to life's most important issues. We want to thank you for joining us for this week's message. We pray you find strength and encouragement as we learn from God's truth together. For more information, go to visitgracechurch.com. Hello, everyone. I want to welcome you to Grace. Uh, We are closing out our series called Choices. Uh, It's on relationships, and I'm laughing because we just ran out here at the last minute, which is awesome. So I was telling him what to do if you couldn't see. I was whispering, like, can you pull that off? Okay. Been doing this for many years. Uh, (laughs) Listening to her whisper, do this. So uh, we've actually had four weeks of God's heart on relationships. Week one, we talked about choices for unmarrieds, then choices for marriage, choices for, uh, regarding sex, choices regarding divorce. So this week is a Q&A week, and we have collected over four weeks from our 4,500 people who call themselves grace, uh, gracers, 12 questions by Tuesday night. So we're going to answer all 12 questions uh, from our church over those four weeks. And so, Kath, why don't you... Got to say, I was slightly surprised that we only have 12 questions. We are such a well-adjusted church. Way Sweetie, to go, huh? Let me tell you something about our church. Our <laughs> church doesn't have questions because our church doesn't need those kinds of things. So we have all the questions. We're about friends. And so we can't wait to ask questions, no. answer questions about our friends. But uh, honestly, I know that there are probably many more questions that are, for whatever reason, didn't get put on the Connect card. And I just want to say, though, we'll answer them. Where we found that life really changes, I mean, yeah. we'll say words here that are true, but where you can actually make the change in your life is get involved in a grace group, get yeah. involved in community. If you're single, get involved in a singles group. If you're a couple, if you can get involved in a couple's grace group. We've been a part of a couple's grace group the last three years, and there has been incredible and truly miraculous life change in and all of us, and every one of us has contributed to that change in someone else. Yeah, the whole life cycle of our grace group, we started out uh, amazing. We actually followed the whole community series that we recommend every grace group to start. A grace group is only as good or only as transparent as its leaders are transparent. We got very transparent years ago. We went real super deep, super fast. Then we kind of backed off over the course of time, but we've had revival in our grace group over the last couple of months. It's been just amazing, so encourage you to do that. So we did receive 12 questions. Two of them are silly, so we'll get them out of the way at the start. Question number one is about the cat jacket. Here's the question. How is the cat jacket? Where is it now? Okay, I use the cat jacket example uh, about how it feels to be unmarried in the church. Kind of awkward. People want to fix you. Um, where is the cat? And go back and watch week one of that series. Um, where is the cat, cat jacket? I don't know. It was stolen from my office and used on Friday night for someone to imitate me as they put it on, pretended to be Tim Howie, which is fantastic. So currently it is stolen at this point. Question two, which is fine with me, question two is about uh, how did Chris Anderson not spill during the promo video? This is for the marriage night, and he was waving his coffee cup around with his wife, and like, if there's liquid, shouldn't be sloshing around? Yes, I asked him. He had drunk all the coffee by that point, and was waving it around. It was empty at that point. All right, so I've answered two of the questions. Uh, my wife's worked really hard. She's prepared for the rest of the 10 questions. Oh, Go. No way. That would be bad for our marriage, honey. I wonder if I How didn't show up. How about five and five? If, if I didn't if show up. If you didn't show up, I had a whole lot of cat stories I was oh, going to share, but... 
So you ought to pray and just thank God that I spared you. So um, we're, we're going to take on five and five of the ten. We're only going to give you elevator speeches, two to three minutes. We're not going to do any question total justice. We're going to start that conversation so you can go further. Maybe in your grace group. In your grace group, absolutely. So let me go ahead and pray, and then we'll dive into these important questions. Father, thank you for these questions. These people took the time to write. They're on the range from important to even hurtful situations. We even saved question 10 to be question 10 because it's really for everybody. How do you deal with heartache when life is not working out the way you want it? I just pray that you would move uh, through Kathy, use her, use me, use your Holy Spirit and the Word of God for everywhere from Ephesians 4 all the way to Psalm 40 that we cover today. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Kathy, you have the first couple of questions that are, they apply to everybody, really. Yep, so the first one is about praying out loud, and it reads, how can I help my husband to be comfortable enough to pray out loud with me? And praying out loud is something that a lot of people struggle with. On most weekends, I, Sunday at 11 o'clock, I'm teaching our fourth grade class. And when I ask, hey, who wants to pray out loud? Uh, cricket, cricket, cricket. Nobody raises their hand. Yeah. It's, it's something that is uncomfortable for many people. And yet, there are so many examples in the Bible where people come together and pray together. And when you pray together, that is such an opportunity for the body of Christ in your marriage and the larger body to really get closer and see life change. So it's a good thing that, is, that we should do. So how do you do it? Well, if there's something that you know is good for someone else to do, how do you get them to do it? I'd say, number one, pray about it. Pray that their heart would be changed. Pray that you would have the right words to say. And James 1.5 and James 4.2 are just two of many places that say, if you lack wisdom, ask God. Or you have not because you ask not. So first I'd say pray. And then second, I'd say make it safe. Because I could go, honey, you know you're the leader of the family and you really should be praying out loud. And what's wrong with you? Which is my world each week. So I want to know. <laughs> Haha. <laughs> no. Or I could be vulnerable because probably he's afraid because he's afraid to be vulnerable. But what if I'm yeah. vulnerable first? Honey, I would just mean the world to me. And I don't even care how you say it or what you say. Or you could write it down first. Or even if you said one sentence, could we? Because there anything we could do that we could pray together? Totally different feel. So ask God first and then ask and make it safe. And I, I, when people are concerned about praying out loud to God in front of others, couple things to note. Romans 8 says your prayer you uttered is changed on the way up anyway. Romans 8 says your words are changed and your emotions are changed. So why are you stressing about something that's changed if you don't want to pray out loud? Then the question is really, so who are you trying to impress? You're more concerned about what people think about you than what God thinks about you. And it's changed anyway. So just talk to God like you talk to another person. Are you concerned to talk to your husband? And I can't talk to my husband in presence of others because i got to use his full name. i got to say it the right way. i got to say it with the right words. i got to say in Jesus' name, amen, in my husband's name, amen. I mean, do you stress? No, you just talk like a regular person. So that's the first question. Okay. Question two is about arguing. How to fight the right way. Since all couples fight or argue, how do we do that in a God-honoring, healthy way? And again, it's a general question because if you're not married, you probably still have a relationship that you argue with, whether it's your larger family or friendships or at work or in the church body, there are disagreements that come up. So what do we do? 
Well, there are tons of verses, again, in the Bible. Um, Just read Proverbs, and it will tell you all kinds of ways of how to communicate well. But if I could only pick one passage, I'd go to Ephesians 4, 15, and 16. Ephesians 4, 15, and 16, I love it. It's one of my life verses. And it starts out with saying, speaking the truth in love. So we've got to tell the truth, but how we say it, again, is so critical. So how do I speak the truth to the person I'm disagreeing with, and how do I speak it in love? But then you keep going on the verse, and it says that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. So that part, even in my disagreement, is a reminder that I'm not the one in charge. I'm not trying to win. Christ is in charge, and I need to speak the truth, remembering that God's in charge, Christ's in charge. And going on to verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. So that part reminds me that we're supposed to be a body. We're supposed to be a team. If I'm beginning this conversation with the motive of winning and getting my way, then I've missed the point. But if I remember that God wants me to be together, then I want to be heard, but I want to hear him. And I want to find a solution that may not be my way, but If we speak the truth in love and try and be a team, it will make such a difference. One other part. Now, personally, I'm not a good arguer. I more often, and some of you are probably like this, I'd rather clam up and be quiet and okay if he wants it his way. I'm I'm more likely bent that way. But that's wrong, too, because Ephesians 4.16 says every joint needs to supply something. So it's really the body will be better by you speaking truth in love. And I want to share a best practice for you because people often will ask me, hey, Tim, where does the Bible talk about arguing? Where does the Bible talk about uh, parenting? Where does the Bible talk about your emotions? There's something that people invented called the World Wide Web. And if you do an internet search and just type in this phrase, Bible verses on arguing, Bible verses on parenting, Bible verses on confidence, whatever the issue is, Bible verses on fear. People have done the research. And you go look at the research, take those verses and believe those verses and, and follow the, that. The research is done out there, so kind of a best practice. All right, third question. This starts a series of premarital questions that I'll start answering. Question three, discussing your past. Do you think it is important for people getting married to talk about their past in detail? If you've already laid your past at the feet of God to forgive, do you need to air your dirty laundry with your future spouse? It's a really good question. So um, the quick version of it is, candor about your past is vital and important, but graphic detail is not helpful. Okay, let's talk about that. So what's funny is that she, uh, my wife, was praying about what verses to share. She shared Ephesians 4. 15 and 16, which says, speak the truth because we're connected to each other. I separately found Ephesians 4, 25, which is nine verses later, which I believe says, speak the truth because we are connected to each other. Like Paul repeats himself and God apparently wanted us to go there. So it's Ephesians 4, 25 says, nine verses after her verse, therefore, putting away lying Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Like God inspires Paul to repeat that twice. We separately landed on this 
right there. And so absolutely you should speak the truth, which means uh, people who withhold key information about their past, when they enter a marriage covenant, they remind me of Joshua chapter 9, the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites deceived Israel about their past and their real situation to get this covenant with them. That's Joshua 9. Candor is vital. Hey, this has happened to me. This happened past. I did this in my past. But graphic detail, not helpful. Okay, question three is a great question. Introduction to question four, a short one. Question four. How important is premarital counseling? It's really, really important. Really important. Let's go Next on. Next question. Question five. So, uh, so two verses on this, Proverbs eleven fourteen and 24, 6. 11, 14, 24, 6 Proverbs both say the same thing, that in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. And the point is that if you have a certain direction you want to go, but everybody godly around you is telling you you're going the wrong direction, listen to them. Because quite often, because we're in the moment, in the fog of emotion and our feelings, we can misunderstand. You better have the handwriting of God himself to override the safety and emotion of counselors, which is why we have a premarital counseling ministry. We hook you up with a couple that's been married for seven years, trained. They do the prepare and rich comprehensive survey. And years ago, we decided to move premarital counseling from optional to mandatory for us to do marriages based on this story. Yeah, this happened a few times that for one reason or another, we couldn't get all the premarital counseling in or sometimes none of it in. And the wedding date arrived and with mm, trepidation, we went ahead and, okay, we'll go ahead and, and we'll get married. But in each one of those cases, the marriage ended in divorce. Yeah, every marriage we made the exception divorced. So the last dude, I just told him with my gift of mercy, you are the reason I will never do this again. And you we love made... this dude. Huh? We love this dude. We love him. He's in our church. God's blessed him. It's awesome. He loves me to talk, me to, talk to him that way. So, <laughs> And by the way, he's blessed and married, and God's in his life. This yep. is awesome. Friend of mine. Question five is about sex outside of marriage. A bit longer. Um, I am a divorced father. My girlfriend is also divorced. We feel, that we, have, we feel that we have committed to each other. Am I never to have sex again if I'm not married? Will I be forgiven if I continually sin by having sex in my unmarried relationship? Okay, so we dealt with this topic, topic of choices and sex, in week three of our series. And so you want to go back there, please read, uh, please watch week three of our series. A couple questions. Am I never to have sex again if I'm not married? Yes. That is the point. If you believe God designed sex for his purposes and God's a part of life, then yes, sex is designed for marriage. Will I be forgiven if I continually sin by having sex? Guys, that is a dangerous question. Here's why it's a dangerous question. Because the whole book of 1 John is built around this thought. If you continue in sin, if you continue in sin, one of two things is going to happen. Either continually sin, ignore God. God will bring discipline in your life. That's Hebrews chapter 12. If you're his child, he's a good parent. He will discipline you. Or if he doesn't, it's evidence that your salvation was fake it was fraudulent. You never had it in the first place. If you continue in sin, it's evidence you never had it in the first place. It's a dangerous, and there's even 
up to including killing people, bringing them home, that are his children, 1 John 5. Does God forgive you if you confess and turn? Yes. 1 John 1, 9 says, if you confess your sins, confess them, and you turn from them. He's faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That is hope in Christ. All right, so we're at the halfway point. Yep. Should we take a big, Ooh, deep how breath? How do you feel? Should we just breathe for a moment? It's too much. So everyone take a big, deep breath on all the locations. Breathe in on the count of three. One, two, three. Breathe out. <laughs> Cleansing breath. We're halfway there. Um, Kath, you got questions six and seven regarding marriage. Okay. Yeah, it, it's hard up here to just go minute to minute. I don't know if it's hard to hear. So... Question six, blended families. In a blended family, how do you put your spouse above your children? And I would say just being married not in a blended family, it is hard sometimes. And I was even convicted about this in preparing this message and the other one, that kids can sometimes just, their needs can be so noisy and so obvious and like, okay, I can't not pray for them and their needs. But him, he's an adult and he should be spiritual and pray for his own stuff, right? Like, confession, that's the way I feel sometimes. And then, no, that's not right. My role first is to lift him up. He's my long-term forever. My kids are, you know, praying, growing up and leaving. But but he's forever. So I need to make him the priority. And yet I know in a blended family, it's extra hard because you've loved your kids before you've ever loved your current spouse. So how do you make your spouse first? Because again, hopefully they're your long-term relationship and your kids will eventually leave. Well, it's the series. It's about choices. We can choose to pray for our spouse first. In whichever way you need a reminder to do that, pray for him first or pray for her first. And then you can choose to calendar in such a way that they know that they are the priority. Whether it's quality time or events or whatever it is. Ask and find out, okay, these are the things that we can put on the schedule to make sure you know that you're number one uh, before my kids. There's additional challenges and flexibility needed. I talked to a friend of mine who's been a part of a blended family for a lot of years, and she says it's easy to get in the mindset of the, the mine, the yours, the ours, especially in regards to kids. And she made the suggestion of you can actually love your spouse so much by making their kids really your kids and loving them like your own kids. Then yeah. another thing she said, because we've got two minutes here, is she said a great resource is The Smart Step Family yeah. by Ron L. Deal. Yeah, you want to write that down because I've heard multiple people who read this book. Ron Deal's, D-E-A-L, Ron Deal's book, The Smart Step Family. You say it doesn't apply to you. You're going to know a step family at some point, stepmom, stepdad, who is struggling. They're going to need you to email yourself right now. And put the smart step family, Ron Deal, so you can give them that book recommendation one of these days. All right. Okay, question seven is about abuse and respect. Yeah. And, and this one more than other for, and any other for me is hard. Like, really, I have to try and answer this in two minutes? So my heart is heavy. We'll read it and I'll try, but we'll talk. Ephesians 5 says, tells wives to respect their husband. How does a wife do this when her husband is abusive verbally and cruel to their children? Somebody wrote this question, and yet I'm sure that there are many more that could have written it that are listening right now. And my heart hurts, and it wasn't God's design. God never said there should be abusive husbands in this world. 
And that's part of the whole sin that we're still dealing with in this world. So how do you answer that? Well, I'm going to go to a verse where in First Peter that Peter's talking about another situation that wasn't God's design, but how do you deal with it? And that's First Peter 2.17, where he says, Honor all people. Honor the king. And the king at this time was probably King Nero, who was killing Christians and blaming them for things that wasn't their fault. And yet, Peter still said, he doesn't deserve it, but it's a position. Honor the king. Honor all people. But the big difference is he said, you know, he's not saying be controlled by them. First Peter talks about the persecution of the church, but the church didn't say, oh, I have to do what the king says. I have to honor them. And the church did what Jesus said. So in the same way in marriage, we can respect the person, the position of the husband, but not be controlled by it. And Kent did a great job last week in his message on divorce with more specific examples. And one of the things he said is get out, get help. Don't feel like you need to be stuck there. And Tim will talk about that in a minute. But also another resource is Boundaries in Marriage by Dr. Henry Cloud. And he gives this example of a way to be respectful but not controlled. And so if there's an abusive situation, he can, you could say, you can continue to yell if you choose. That's respectful. And it, and, but it's not being controlled because then... You could say, but we will choose to not be in your presence when you act that way. Still respectful, but not controlled. Yeah, that whole series of books by Dr. Henry Cloud, Boundaries is the original book we read and heard him speak on it. It goes through a variety of subjects. What Kathy shared is gold here. If, here's a boundary. If you want to act that way, do blank. You can certainly do that. Because you can't stop somebody from acting a certain way, even though you want to. Some people are just killing you because you can't stop it. If you want to do you, you do you. But when you do you, I'm going to do this to protect myself. Or your kids. Or my kids. That's a healthy boundary. It's awesome. All right, so two more questions. I get the separation and divorce questions. First about separation, three situations for it. What about toxic relationships with emotional, physical abuse or if one spouse says, I never loved you, and I never will. All right. Um, it stinks to read that. People, um, yeah, physical abuse. Here's what you, let's take them one at a time. Throw them in jail in Jesus' name. Okay, get out, protect yourself, call the cops and don't bail them out. Seriously. Because they, Romans 13 says that. It says, for if they don't listen to God's ministers with the word of God, then they better listen to God's ministers carrying the Smith and Wesson and be thrown in jail overnight. And we heard that years ago that women, we learned that women could be the physical abusers too. We have a story about this. Right. Early in our marriage when we were counseling a couple, we had a husband come over distraught and was saying, you know, my, my wife is such a backbiter. But he lifted his shirt yeah. and showed bite marks on his back. Yeah. Literally, she got on his back and bit him. Yeah, so we saw these multiple round bite marks on his back. I said, dude, you've got to throw your wife in jail. He would not do it, would not do it. I said, this is not right. You can't let, it's unethical. It's wrong. They ended up getting, we spent tons of time. They got a divorce eventually. Emotional abuse, um, you may well need to leave. Get out, get professional help, get godly counsel. We did encounter some people call things emotional abuse, which weren't emotional abuse. We discovered 
that her husband wasn't obeying him perfectly, and she called that emotional abuse. For example, um, actually the same situation years ago, the backbiter. Um, she was backbiting him because he wouldn't wipe different sides of their child's face with different washcloths, not to cross-effect the two different sets of eyes. And that was emotional abuse. And we said, I'm not sure him obeying you in every aspect is emotional abuse. So there is emotional abuse. Get out, get help, read the book Boundaries in Marriage. Regarding the comment, I never loved you and I never will. First of all, it's just downright mean. And I don't believe you. I don't. I've done many marriages over the years. Not once I've ever had a, a person get married and say, I just want you to know, I never love this person. And I never will. That's a lie. Or revisionist history. Just downright mean. I've heard it multiple times. People take their final parting shot. By the way, you can't stop somebody from leaving you. Even though you want to. 1 Corinthians 7.15 says that. 1 Corinthians 7.15, you can't make someone love you. Whether they claim to be a believer or not, you have to let them go. It says let them go. You're not under bondage in such cases. All right. Question nine is about divorce and remarriage now. Divorce and remarriage. If someone has been married and divorced, the previous spouse committed adultery on them and then left them. Adultery and abandonment. Is it a sin for remarriage? For either person, the adulterer, abandoner, or the person who's been committed adulterer and abandoned. Okay, again, two minutes is not going to do justice, but we dealt with this topic extensively last week. Go back and watch week four. There are a lot of different views out there. We have a friend in ministry who teaches in, in their church that unless that they can commit adultery on you, they can abandon you, they cannot support you, unless one of you dies, he teaches then both of you would be committing adultery if either one of you gets remarried. That's the most extreme on that side, never unless they're dead. The other extreme we hear is an argument from human-based emotion. How could God want you to be so unhappy? God didn't want you to be unhappy. Leave. Which, by the way, not sure what Bible they're reading. There are seasons you are very unhappy. And God's allowed this. Unhappiness is not a reason for divorce. So, what do we teach? We teach that the leave-er is not free, but the leave-e is free. You want to go off, commit adultery, you want to abandon, you are not free. You want to leave, you're left, abandoned, cheated on, you are free. That's Matthew 19, that's 1 Corinthians 7. I know in your mind there's a thousand what-if scenarios. What about me? What about this? What about that? That's why you have pastors and counselors to go talk about your unique situation and watching last week's topic. We save, big, big, one more deep breath. We save this question for last on purpose because all these, these concepts create great heartache in us. So what do you do when life is not working out? And that's Cass' question. Yeah, let's read question 10. What do you say to someone who feels like God is telling them that marriage isn't in their future and how can they deal with that heartache? One real quick answer is that we just don't know. God says yeah. that you can't even begin to, to imagine the things that God has for us. It can feel like that, but, you know, I have a ninth grade history teacher that still sends me a Christmas card every year, and that was a lot of years ago, and he just got married, and he's like 75. So you don't know. First time. You don't know. 
But when it feels that way that you can't possibly see it, whether you're in a marriage and your marriage is not working out like you thought, or you thought you'd always be married and now you're single, or you are single and you don't want to be, how do you deal with that heartache? And I'll say, for us, it was probably six years ago that we had the worst heartache of we had a failed adoption, and we, had to, we actually got to parent Zoe for about four weeks, and then we had to give her back to her birth parents. And that um, heartache was huge. So the, the first thing would, I would say is don't try and stuff those emotions down. Don't pretend or even give true Jesus words of all things work together for good. It'll be fine. I mean, it's true, but... God made us in his image, and part of that is to have emotions and to express them. And I know that's true because God said David was a man after his own heart, and David wrote Psalms. And there's a lot of emotions in Psalms that are pretty raw, and like you read them and go, can I say that? And yes, I can say that, because God says in Psalm 139 that he already knows everything I think, so I need to say it because that's the thing that's going to draw me closer to God. So whichever way it is for you to say it, there's a variety of ways that you said you've just changed in your way of talking to God. Yeah, I kind of went through a, a revival last summer. Uh, I was going, all electronic, reading electronic, my electronic Bible, taking notes in my electronic notes. And then fall was difficult, schedule changed, those things, still walking with God, wasn't the same. I went back to paper, though, in early December. Paper Bible, paper journal, and most days of the week, most days, I, I put the date, and I say, dear Lord, and I write a letter to God. That's what the Psalms are. When is the last time you, you wrote a letter to God? Dear Lord. And I tell him what I'm feeling. I'm feeling this way. I put prayer requests down. I, I thank him for certain things I'm seeing. Uh, two weeks, example from two weeks ago. So t- and we, we're sensing, we're in a season of several months of sensing more overt satanic attack around us. But even more of God on a daily basis being bigger and stronger and better. So it's a unique, I don't think, Kathy said, I don't think they, they go apart from each other. It was two weeks ago on a Friday that I wrote seven questions of God. I said, God, question one, what about this? Two, three. Question seven, I said, God, if this situation is happening around me, I'm not going hunting for it. Bring it to me. I told Kathy about the prayer request. Then what happened? Like an hour later, I get a text from a friend that I'm like, huh, that kind of sounds like maybe the answer to Tim's question. So I'm going to email her back, kind of ask a follow-up more, see if this is the answer to the question. And so I did. And then I prayed real quick. If this is the answer to Tim's question, have her reply back with a certain phrase, certain word. And she did. She used the word. The actual word, yeah, boom. And she showed it to me. I was on the phone with Goosebumps. her friend. I know, it was amazing. So we're, when's the last time you, my point is, when you did the Psalms, you wrote your own letter to God. But I want to provide safety there that when we were in the worst part of the failed adoption, I couldn't write. I started yeah. at it, and then it got worse. And I couldn't write, yeah. and I couldn't pray, and I couldn't read. Like, I'd read the words on the page, and nothing would make it in. Yeah. And in those moments, my community, my grace group and friends, texted me the things that they were praying for me. And that was so awesome, and that was the way to get through it. Yeah. But... Once we've done that, then what's the next step? Because you can't live there forever. And when you read the Psalms, David didn't stop there. The next thing that he would do is choices. Again, choices to believe who God was and choices to believe what God said about him. 
So if I, I am sure that somewhere in Psalms 1 to 150, there is a psalm that re- reaches you where you're at. But I'm looking at Psalm 40 today, and if you want to look at it later, the whole psalm, I'm only picking out a few verses. It starts low and goes high and then goes back down and high, and I don't know, I totally am there. Okay, my brain is going to choose to believe this, but now I'm so down. <laughs> but I'm going to choose to believe this. So let me show some verses of Verse 1 says, I waited patiently for the Lord to help me, and he turned to me and heard my cry. Waiting patiently is never fun. He says it a lot in Psalms. I know that's what we need to do. And verse 2, though, really connected to my heart. He lifted me out of the pit of despair, out of the mud and the mire. And when we were in the midst of that, okay, I'm going to have to give this little baby that we love so much to birth dad who's told me he's an atheist? Like, God, how is that a part of your plan? I was in the pit. I couldn't see out. I couldn't imagine life being okay again. And I think that was where David was. But you keep reading, and he says, but he set my feet on solid ground and steadied me as I walked along. You know, a few months later, that started to happen. And then verse 3 says, he has given me a new song to sing, a hymn of praise to our God. Did we see it that a few years later we'd actually adopt from the same birth mom? Like, who would have believed that? And the amazing story around that, what a new song to sing with that. And maybe sometimes the heartache isn't just about you. Maybe you don't have that desire, one, because God wants to meet it, but maybe also there are people around you that God wants you to influence in the midst of your valley and how you walk through it. Because it says in the second part of that verse, many will see what he has done and be amazed, and they will put their trust in the Lord. And we saw that in the case with the failed adoption. If we were hurting and sad and people ministered to us, but just being honest and walking through it and choosing to believe God ministered to other people too. It goes on in the ups and downs and all that. And then in verse 15 would be my next step of talk to God, tell him your feelings, but then when you don't know what to do, Do verse 15 that says, May all who search for you be filled with joy and gladness in you. So what do you do? Just search for God. Look for God. Study God. Believe God. Uh, This last Monday in Moms of Grace, which is another great grace group to be in, Mandy Anderson spoke about what do you do when you're in the middle of heartache. And she gave personal examples of, of her life. And she said, You can choose to cling to the promise or cling to the problem. And that's what David did. He, he was honest, but then he chose to believe who God was and that he had good things for him and there was a future for him. There's actually, I love what Mandy said, by the way. I'll ask you guys the question. We'll kind of end here. Do you focus on the promise of God or the problem you're facing? I'll introduce a third one. Or the command you should be doing? So there's three ways you can look at life. As a follower of Jesus. There's promises of God. There's problems you're facing. There's commands you should be doing. So for me, even before January, I, I, t- I taught on the gospel back in January, and I had a shift. Verses like 1 Peter 5, 7, I would used to focus on the command. Casting all your care upon him. Yeah, he cares for you. Cast all your care upon him. There's the command. For he cares for you. You know how I read that now? I look for the promise. That's where you go first. Casting all your care upon him. For he cares for you. It's the promise side. Are you a person who focuses on the promise of God? That God is who he says he is. 
that you are who he says you are, that he feels about you the way he says he feels about you? Do you start with the promise? Problem, command, or the actual promise of God? Let's pray. God, I pray that you would work in us and among us, that we'd be a people who believe your promises, even more than focused on the problem that we cannot fix, even more than focused on the command that we can't do enough to fix things, but starting with believing your promise and in that power of the Holy Spirit, because we're believing you, the Holy Spirit's working then, we do, we follow. Help us be a people of faith and believe. If people don't know Jesus, God, please help them surrender their life to you right now. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you have questions or would like to contact us for prayer, please email us at info at For more information about our ministries, location, and service times, go to visitgracechurch.com.